from Kurtco Media. This is Cars That Matter. Welcome to Cars That Matter. This is Robert Ross, and today we get to talk one-on-one with Bill Curtis, host of Kurtco Media's Meet Me in the Middle. Bill's co-hosted with me on this podcast on occasion, but today it's really just the two of us, friend to friend. Welcome, Bill. Hey, Robert. How you doing? It is nice to sit down with you for a change. This is great. So, Robert, I've always been so impressed with your design sensibility in everything, whether how you keep your home, Every aspect of your life, the way you dress, the watches you wear, the shoes that you wear. <laughs> well, from the and, neck down, I try my best, Bill. From the neck up, I... Well, it, I only look at the neck up, Robert. <laughs> so what I want to know is what's the difference for you between the design of a car that you want to drive or the design of a car that you want to collect? Well, sometimes it's just a matter of looking at them, hanging them on the wall like you would do with a fine painting or putting them on a pedestal as you would do with a piece of sculpture. And I know there are a lot of people who disagree with that sentiment. I mean, people constantly disparage the garage queen mentality. In other words, a car that's so perfect it can't be driven on the street. But at a certain point, I think it's fair to say that a car has served its initial purpose and like a championship racehorse, it's time to put it out to pasture and let it enjoy itself. It's dotage. And the dotage of some of these old cars is truly on the show field and not necessarily saying that that's a bad thing at all. First car that mattered that you owned, did you buy it to drive or did you buy it to collect? Well, the first car that mattered that I bought to drive was my very first car. And the only reason that it mattered was because it was my first car and something that I acquired for all of $1,200 with my hard-earned money. That was real money. And it was a little BMW 1600. And certainly since then, the 1600-2002 series has become a very important landmark in the history of BMW and really put them on the map. But it figures that you were that sophisticated back then. The rest of us were soldering lawnmower engines onto Stingray bicycles, and that was our transportation. You were buying BMW 1600s. Well, it was certainly an unknown back in the Stone Age, but for me, it was a great way to sort of understand what kind of fun could be had with a low-powered car that was light and nimble and really took advantage of some of our roads in Southern California. I mean, so where did you get the $1,000 it cost to buy it? Well, it was actually 1200 That was a lot of money, but I worked at a picture frame shop in my later high school years. It was actually a picture frame shop that also doubled as a head shop. I did the picture framing and the uh, owner and his sister ran the paraphernalia section. Funnily enough, I think it was probably the only kid that never smoked weed back then. I was too busy studying and painting and doing all the sorts of things that most kids probably weren't doing. So my, my first car was a Buick Wildcat, 1962, 445, four barrel. Good heavens, you could uh, put about three BMW 1600s inside that thing. Inside the trunk, actually. That's right. Our record was holding 12 people in the car. Now, not everybody was actually in the car. We lived on Long Island, and we would go to Jones Beach. Uh, these were two long bench seats, so it was very easy to have four people in the front seat and four people in the back seat. Absolutely. And then you had, of course, the back panel behind the back seat That's where good the for convertible top would come down. And so we would go down Meadowbrook Parkway from 
Garden City, Long Island, to Jones Beach with 12 people in the car, and we would wave at the police as we drove by them on the Meadowbrook Parkway with 12 people in one car. It had to look like a parade float on Madison Avenue. That's awesome. Actually, that car was in the parade in Garden City at one point or another. Anyway, moving right along. That's great. The the great thing about that car is it didn't look like anything that was going to be able to build up any kind of speed. And this thing was so long, just a huge car. And back then at Roosevelt Field, we would have match races. And you've seen stuff like that in old movies and whatever, but you'd have your pink slip with you. My pink slip had cost me $525 for that car. That was my investment. That was real money. But this car that looked like it really couldn't move at all was incredibly fast. Now, back then, we were using Sunoco 260. Sure, the dinosaur gasoline. Yeah. And you'd go through basically a tank of gas in a match race that would be, you know, two miles long in a straightaway. And... This car would beat the other cars, and they were like GTOs. They were all these Camaros that were all hopped up. They looked really impressive, could not touch this car. (laughs) And so this this was a lot of fun. The problem was every time you had a couple of these races, my harmonic balance would go out, and we would have to replace that on this car probably six or seven times. And it was about a 12-hour job. Yeah, that, that's not like for me. the faint of heart. But anyway, that was a great car for me. But I'm going to jump ahead to a time where I was in an Italian restaurant in Woodland Hills. And I looked outside the front window, and there was a guy dancing around the <laughs> Porsche parking lot. <laughs> well, I wasn't exactly dancing. I think I was moving quickly from car to car because I was trying to remember certain details, and the only way to really do it was to sort of instantly compare and contrast. But you had to leap between one car and the other to be able to keep those images fresh in your mind. You were there for quite a while, and I remember seeing you the next morning, finding out that that was you, and finding out that that day you were ordering your first (laughs) brand-new off-the-line Porsche. Old habits die hard, and I've done it a few times since. They have a way of getting under your skin. There's no question about it. So tell us about that. Oh, gosh. Starting with the color, because that was just crazy. That was an interesting time in Porsche's 911 lineage. The 964 was the model series, and it had been introduced in Europe in 1989. Came to America in 1990, and right about that time, Porsche was in really dire straits. I believe in 1991, they sold something like 16,000 cars, which is a paltry sum and certainly not enough to keep the company in business. But I bought a new 91 Carrera too, and it was a turquoise green metallic, the only one that I've ever seen then or since, and a gorgeous thing. So that was one of the cars that I sure miss. So what was your next after? Was that the Maserati? Did that come next? No, no. I had, I think after the green Porsche, boy, the things sort of melt together. You know, you get old and all of a sudden the decades melt together, not just the, which is, not just which the cars. Which is scary. For those of you listening who <laughs> didn't know Robert back then, he had hair down to the middle of his back, jet black. You didn't pay me enough to get a haircut, Bill. A quick story. Way back when, we had been invited onto the USS aircraft carrier Carl Vincent, which is a nuclear-powered aircraft carrier. It was someplace in the middle of the Pacific and Robert and I and a few of our friends from the company were lucky enough to be flown out there, have an arrested landing on the top of an aircraft carrier, spend the night. And I tell you this story because my favorite moment was 
when we were given a tour of the boat, as they called it, which had 5,200 people living on board. It was a city on the water. (laughs) We walked into some of the barracks, and one of the guys, one of the sailors, suddenly stood up, saluted, and said, woman on board, and everybody stood up and saluted. And that was Robert with his hair down to the middle of his back. And But by the way, he was the best they had seen in a while. <laughs> well, it does get lonely out at sea, but they were out there serving our country, so my hat was off to them. That was a really amazing experience, actually, the takeoff was. Boy, it really was. You talk about acceleration in some of these cars, whether it's a Bugatti Chiron or a Tesla 100 with a battery pack. There's no such thing as acceleration in G's compared to being catapulted, catapulted off a deck. That's quite an experience. I remember when they actually made us sit through about a half-hour seminar on how we should treat the takeoff and what they said they were going to count it down and how we had to put our hands. You sit backwards on this plane, and we had to put our hands inside the seatbelt gloves because otherwise our hands would hit the seat in front of us as we took off backwards, and we would break our wrists on the seat in front of us. And we listened to that, and we were like, yeah, 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 can we have a beer? And anyway, they put us on this thing. They give us the signal. They give us three seconds to prepare. We stick our hands in this thing, and this thing takes off. And all of us experienced what it's like to have our eyes actually leave our head. And we all turned to each other and just kind of went, whoa. Yeah, I looked like rat fink. It was quite something. And then, of course, you think about what the guys that flew the SR-71 at Mach 3 or whatever must have had to deal with. So We were in a mail plane at the time. Yeah, exactly. Really quite something. I'm going to go back to the Maserati because you had a Maserati Quattroporte customized. Oh, that was actually a Grand Sport. That was when Maserati had just come back to the country. But then you had a convertible too, Bill. You had a Grand Sport Spider, if I'm not mistaken. I did. I did. It was a fine little pair of cars. And before anybody really knew Maserati. It was kind of not the household name that it is today. And I like that Grand Sport. It had essentially a Ferrari 360 V8 in it from the F360. And remarkable car. I remember though when the president of the company came to me and said, have you seen the colors that Robert chose for that car? Well, actually it kind of boomeranged back on him because then president of the company in Italy was visiting us in Monterey one year, Karl-Heinz Kalbfell. He said to me, you have to come to Bologna, and I'll give you a car to drive. And I said, oh, really? Yeah, it's a purple Maserati with a pale blue interior. You son of a bitch, I'm driving your old car. The first one they painted, the paint wasn't right, and they made me keep it as my daily driver, (laughs) and they built you another one. So I guess my aesthetic sensibilities were able to resonate on a regular and, basis. And did you sell that car? or I did. You know, I gave it away. I mean, these, these cars are just... Because well, uh, they had to have a purple car. It well, takes a, a select group of people that would be willing to buy that. Well, now, let's make clear that it was an important Maserati color from the 80s, an historic color called Bordeaux Victoria, which was used for the Quattroporte Series 3 and historically some of their race cars. I had no I think, doubt you had a philosophy you know, behind it. You know, I think... I just remember what it was like to be in it. Well, it was definitely quite a contrast. It's back to what you were saying about being seen in a car, and that's part of what you look for in a design. An automobile is an opportunity to express oneself. It says a lot about a person when they choose a Mercedes-Benz over a BMW or a Cadillac over a Lexus. There, There are reasons that all these cars exist, because they're 
different people for whom they are made. And certainly in the world of sports cars, as they like to say in the business, an ass for every seat. That's why some people gravitate toward Italian machines. Some people gravitate toward German machines, British machines. The good news, of course, is that you don't have to have just one. And, uh, of course, you had quite a few at one time when we used to share a, share toy, a, shack. a, a toy shack. Yes. Uh, long before the term man cave came around, I remember you thought it was a good idea, and I heartily agreed, to build out a quiet, very under-the-radar space which was actually a warehouse. Yep, yep, at least from the outside. From the outside. I actually measured it once, and it turned out to be about 4,500 square feet upstairs, downstairs. But Which we actually filled up pretty good. Oh, it was, it, was, it was actually filled to bursting. I think we probably had as many as, what, maybe 16 cars in there at one time. Yep, yep. And bikes. You could compare and contrast, look at one car and look at another. Well, you had the classy cars that required knowledge and expertise and a design sensibility and... Yeah, right. And you I had, had junk like a convertible, like a Rolls-Royce drop head and, and <laughs> the Ferrari Spider and, you know, stuff like that. Well, actually, let's put you on the spot that, for a minute. What's that? Ferrari or Lamborghini? Well, now, that's a question that I would have answered differently back in 2006 than I would answer today. At the time, certainly in the early 2000s, Ferrari was unquestionably the standard bearer of Italian automotive technology. They certainly had the heritage and the history, and they were far and away more popular. Lamborghini has done a remarkable job the following decade, the one that immediately precedes this show, in developing automobiles that are in every way state-of-the-art. The remarkable thing, too, is that Ferrari and Lamborghini, though they may be in many ways on par, are anything but similar. Personalities as different as night and day. And that's what's remarkable is that both of the cars have a place. Both of the cars actually share many of the same owners now. It used to be that you could never imagine a Ferrari owner even considering having a set of Lamborghini keys in his pocket. But now the great thing is that there's room for both in the same garage. You've owned some really special cars. But you did have one car that you kind of jonesed after for many years. <laughs> you acquired, you then did a whole lot of work on it, brought it up to Pebble. And all I can remember in the toy shack is you had a statue that was anatomically correct, a bull. It was a yes, probably the most hideous and reviled trophy among any of the car clubs extant. Uh, the Lamborghini Club America, which I dearly love, it's run and owned by my friend Andrew Romanovsky, has a nice group of members now. They do a fantastic job. That's my pitch for the club. Everybody should join it, even if you don't own one of the cars. They give out a perpetual award. It's something that the winner of the Lamborghini Club Concours Received People's Choice? Or? Well, it was essentially Best in Show award. I think that year when we first brought the car out, it took People's Choice, Best in Show, and certainly Best in Class. That was a real honor, but I got to take this award home, and it was the grossest thing you've ever seen. Bronze bull weighed like 200 pounds. Right, and had a three-piece set on it like you can't <laughs> believe. I kept that for a year and gave it back, and of course... It's, Not the car, the no, statue. The, the trophy, and it's still in circulation, and some other poor devil has received it. It's all about imprinting. Like I was saying before, Bill, I saw my first 400 GT back in 1967 or so on the SD Zipper car lot. 
on Wilshire Boulevard in Beverly Hills. My dad had taken me there, and we, we looked at the cars, and hey, actually, I had a little brownie camera, and he snapped a picture of me leaning against the fender of one. You still have the picture? I still do. And that imprint just kind of wouldn't go away. But the Lamborghini did it more than any other. And of course, it's through the ensuing decades, a rather ignored and reviled car among the Italian offerings, certainly the Mira and the Countach, and any number of Ferraris well, were top like of mind. The typical Lamborghini race car. I mean, oh, no, no. Not it wasn't at all. a triangle. It was the last of the Mohicans. It was the last car that came out of Carrozzeria Touring of Milan. Carlo Felice Anderloni was the designer. And it was really sort of the harken back to the golden age of Italian coach building. But it, for me, it was a, a real historic reference point. And I think that's why I appreciate it so much. And how many times did you put it into, I'm going to call it rehab, but restoration? Well, it it was restored initially in 2002. I acquired it a year earlier and a shop run by a fellow named Gary Bobolift did a year-long restoration and it took some awards immediately when we took it up to Monterey. And and subsequently, it's been back in rehab for (laughs) for a couple of years, very recently. And then we took a number of awards in 2018 up in Monterey, a couple of best in shows and a best in classic quail and so forth. It hasn't been on the lawn of Pebble Beach yet, but maybe someday. And so you still have it. Oh, I still have it. Yeah, that's a keeper. There are sure a lot of them I wish I still had. I I think one never really realizes how much one misses something until it's gone, whether it's a person in your life or even a material object like a car. So certainly I've got a lot of hand-wringing and gnashing of teeth to be done when I think about some of the ones that got away. Well, we're going to take a quick break, Robert, but when we come back, I'd like to ask you what cars you're yet to buy, but going to. (laughs) On medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurt Co. Media. Hi. My name is Chris Porter from When Last I Left. The show you've been listening to is sponsored by Proudsource Water. Not only do they distribute their water in these stylish and recyclable aluminum bottles, but the water itself is sustainably sourced and naturally filtered. Proudsource Water believes in the ripple effects, that one person's actions can impact the world for the better. You do your part, and I do mine, and maybe we come out better than we started. So go to ProudsourceWater.com to learn more about the company, their vision, and their water. Leave the world better than you found it. Drink Proud Source water. We are back. Thank goodness. <laughs> so I got to ask you, Robert, if money wasn't an issue, what car would you someday like in your garage? Oh, gosh. Well, unfortunately, money is an issue, but there are a few. I think of all the fascinating cars from Italy's past, a car like the ESO A3C, Giotto Bizzarini's race car, or even a 5300 Strata, would be the car of choice. What a look. What an incredible profile it cuts. And an amazing engine, too. A powertrain that doesn't really get the credit it deserves. Guess what? Chevy 327. Why? Because Bizzarini realized that even though he designed, you know, the greatest GTOs of the era and the Lamborghini engine and all these other great things, that when it came to performance for dollar, a small manufacturer like Bizzarini or ESO could rely on America's best and a Chevy or a Ford or Chrysler V8, 
those are hard to beat. So yes, that car would be the car that I'd want to have. Actually, our friend Bruce Myers got probably the most important one around. It was a Le Mans car from the 1964 season. And that is a remarkable vehicle. Looks great. It's got great history and provenance. And of course, nobody knows what they are. There's some other cars, too. It would be hard to go wrong with the first-generation Lamborghini Countach, the LP400, the Periscopo, a fantastic car. As far as the Ferraris are concerned, name your poison. There are so many wonderful Ferraris. Robert, let's play a little game. I'm going to say a line, and you just give me a quick answer in a line. So, torque or top end? Torque. You can never use the top end, but you can use every pound foot of torque from the very get-go. Comfort or tight to the road? You gotta go tight to the road. The seat of your pants feel is probably more important than spreading out so far and wide, as they say at Green Acres. You know, it's always interesting when you realize that the weakest point, the bottleneck, the problem in a car, is the connection between the seat of your pants and the automobile. Absolutely true. There go some of the seats that really matter. <laughs> Automatic or manual? Oh, manual. Every day of the week. In fact, I would have to say that until recently, I've never had an automatic. And I only got that because I had to. They didn't offer it in a stick. So you're probably not a Tesla guy, are you? Well, I think a manual transmission allows somebody to really engage with the driving experience. Eh, granted, they're not as quick as the, the paddle shift transmissions, but... Oh, so you don't include the paddle shifter in the manual, like the old Ferrari 430? Well, if it shifts itself then it's an automatic no. in my book. Damn it. No, I think there's something about stirring a gearbox that makes you a better driver. It makes you think before you act. And for me, that's half the fun of the experience. Unless now, you're on the 405 well, at 5 o'clock in the there afternoon. There is that. I guess that's what okay. drivers are for. Wood steering wheel or leather? <laughs> well, I'm a fan of the wood steering wheel only because I'm old enough to remember when those were actually standard fare on so many British cars. You got a 911 back in 1966, and, well, it came with a wooden steering wheel. Yep, yep. My Shelby had a wooden wheel. All the cars that I really, truly loved. The old loved, Jaguars had beautiful Oh, you know, they sure did. That was like sitting in a wooden smoking room. Exactly. What was your favorite wooden steering wheel? Favorite wooden steering wheel would have to be by Nardi. The Italians make them like nobody else. Okay. Sport mode or racing? Racing is highly overrated, especially when you're as mediocre a driver as I am. I like sport. It's kind of like baby bear's porridge. It was just right. Mama's was too cold and daddy's was too hot. But sport mode is just right. So explain it to our listeners. With the racing mode, where it disengaged all the computer mechanisms that we've basically gotten spoiled with. There, there, there's a reason those were developed for people like me who are aren't smart enough to know how to actually use that car when it's expressing all its evil personality, which is why I think the sport mode's just right. In most cars, it gives you just the right amount of road feel. The handling dynamics are tight. The engine gives you a little bit of extra growl and back talk, but it's not so raucous and not so out of control that you're going to do damage to yourself or anybody else. Okay, here's a mean one. BMW or Mercedes? Well, for me, it's no question. It's BMW. My first car was a BMW. and right, I think you're I, allowed to be wrong on I, something. I, exactly. For a guy who, who's never been without a Mercedes, I guess I'm probably going to get a little bit of blowback from you. But you're actually a driver. You like driving. You know, in all fairness, I think they are both remarkable cars. And in fact, one car I'd love to have in the stable, just because it's such a sleeper and such an incredible utility vehicle, is the latest Mercedes-AMG wagon. Boy, that A-Series wagon is phenomenal. 
and it looks good, it drives well, and you can throw a couple of 50-pound bags of fertilizer in the back and still have room for three cases of Chateau Lafitte. It doesn't get any better than that. Well, okay. Uh, Two wheels or four? Well, that's interesting. I think four wheels ultimately because at a certain age one has to make a concession to frailty and the brevity of human life. But uh, as a younger man, two wheels... There's nobody listens to podcasts that will understand that. Well, as a young man, two wheels and, you know, I still get dewy-eyed whenever I look at the motorcycles that are sitting stationary like floor lamps in my studio. I mean, my old Ducati, my Marini, so many of the bikes that have gone through my hands, all of Harleys that I built, I miss them dearly, and I miss the experience. We had some of our best times riding we, bikes, we Bill. We did. When we, in our company, for you guys listening, we had like eight people. We all went out and got motorcycles, and every Sunday, we would be driving through the hills of Santa Monica and just had the best time. So here's an important question, Robert. Harley Softail or Road King? As a matter of fact, for me, it's a Harley Sportster cafe'd out. But all that being said, I was very fond of my Softail. It was a great bike. I think if I had it to do ever again, I'd probably buy a Road King. The comfort and the presence of that big bull buffalo is really something special. It actually isn't that different from that exactly. Buick Wildcat oh, 445 right, right. convertible that I had when I was a kid. Ice driving or thermal track in the desert. Oh, wow. Well, ice driving, you know, being from Southern California, I don't have a whole lot of conversance with cold weather driving. Ice driving is a lot of fun, but I have to say the track down at Thermal is a kick in the head. And let's face it, you can go out for great Mexican food and hunt chuck wallas at night. So it certainly offers the best of everything the desert has to offer. So when you drive, open windows or closed? Uh, Closed windows, actually. It's funny. I've owned a couple of convertibles, BMW, a Roadster, and a Morgan, of course. We shared Morgans for quite some time. Still, the best kept secret in the car world. I vow to have another Morgan someday. But in all my convertibles, I have never really put the top down and enjoyed it. I like the quiet. I like the solitude. And frankly, the sun isn't a friend. So I like to have the top up. Exactly the opposite of you, Bill, because I think the first day I I met you, you were driving driving an SL. And whenever I see an SL, I still think of you. A Bugatti, the engine or the stereo? Oh, well, they certainly get points for both. Bugatti's W16 engine is something remarkable. I mean, we haven't had a 16-cylinder power plant since the Chisetta, and before that, you had to go back to the pre-war to look at something like a Cadillac. But you're an audiophile. Mm, Well, they do a remarkable job with their speakers and their audio systems. The real music comes from the engine. I didn't say that it necessarily is a stereo you should have on while you're driving. (laughs) But why get out of the car? Well, that's a good question. That's a very good point. Okay, so let's go to the mid-2000s. Rolls or Maybach? Well, that's an interesting one. You know, Maybach, or I should say Mercedes-Benz, got points for trying to resuscitate a brand that was moribund since 1937. Now, the Zeppelin, that was a Maybach. Do you remember how much of our toy shack the Rolls and Maybach took up? You had these classy, old, beautiful, collector, restored, elegant cars, and I had these monoliths that just took up half the studio. Well, in case you ever get kicked out of the house, you had a place to sleep. 
When you consider more than a century of automaking, unbroken, even through the war, they continue to manufacture something. Maybach? Well, but they did kind of have a break as they moved from into the BMW realm. Absolutely true. What a great story that is. Well, it is, you know, especially when you consider the year before they were officially taken over. I think they sold something like 70 cars in the United States. They were as good as dead. The embalmer was on the way. And BMW certainly resuscitated the brand in a beautiful way. And we've had a chance to talk with some of the designers that were a part of that resurrection. If you want to hear more about Rolls-Royce design, listen to Ian Cameron and his wife, Verena Close, talking about design at Rolls-Royce and BMW Design Works in the 2000s. And similarly, we had a young designer named Andreas Thurner, the VP of Design and Global Architecture at Karma Automotive, who was formerly with Rolls-Royce and BMW. So really, it's an interesting way of saying that design sort of comes full circle, and there are a lot of revolving doors in a very small community of designers, and I think that's what allows so many of today's modern cars to have such a sort of rich confluence of ideas that came from all different places. So, to restore or not to restore, Robert? Well, that's a great question. You know, certainly the trend over the last decade or more has been to preserve cars. In other words, sympathetic restoration or no restoration at all. You look at the auction results, and sometimes these cars that haven't been dusted in 30 years and look like they belong in the bottom of a chicken coop, because that's where they came from, get more money than a beautifully restored example. I think that's lunacy. I think that it's a matter of people wanting to be the first to sort of pop the cherry on this poor old thing. But the fact of the matter is, a well-restored car and a properly restored car is probably one of the most beautiful physical artifacts in the world. The only reason to keep a car original and unrestored is if it's in truly remarkable condition. But when things like bodywork and paint and all the other hard parts have become so dilapidated they can't really be brought back with a little polish and a feather duster, then it's probably time to go down to bare metal. You're not just focused, Robert, on the art and design of a fine automobile. You are a multifaceted human being and you've collected art for the last few decades, but in radically different disciplines. Tell us a little about your collection. You know, if cars are art, then art is art, too. So I think, really, I've often said I'd light all my cars on fire to preserve my old master engravings. See, I think when you look at your museum, you realize that the same way you have a taste for different beauty in different cars, you have that in art that hangs on walls. And you have two very radically different collections. Well, there's no question that you're sort of boomeranging from the high Gothic era, late 15th century, early 16th century, northern European prints, and then embracing tribal art from uh, Oceania. For me, it's a fascinating subject. Some of these cultures, especially in New Guinea, were the, arguably the most removed from Western civilization as any on the planet. I mean, certainly a white man had not been seen in parts of the highlands until the late 1950s. So you talk about Stone Age cultures, and truly some of these were Stone Age cultures extant in the 20th century. It's also an area of collecting that's not as much traveled as, for instance, African tribal art or American Indian or pre-Columbian art. For me, it was a great place to do some investigation and make some discoveries that were fairly inspiring, remarkable. I mean, I just think it's so important, whether you're interested in cars or art or food or wine or whatever it happens to be, to continue to discover new things. That, to me, is what kind of keeps my motor running. Just like you develop for your cars that you collect, your art that you collect, you actually create a book for every piece. 
Well, I think it's important. Yes, you're right. Especially now, more than ever, provenance is sort of key to the experience. I try to go back to the beginning. In fact, just recently, I had some conversations with the prior owner of my Lamborghini, and we've gone back to discover the original owner, passed away a few years ago, but I've been in correspondence with his son. I want to know about the earliest years of the car, and really every little scrap of correspondence and every receipt, everything pertaining to a car. And just so you guys know, when he says every receipt and he restores a car, it's a lot of receipts. (laughs) Well, I keep notebooks on everything, and notebooks on conversations, notebooks on all the ephemera that, unfortunately, in the past, you know, so much of it has been lost. And in the world of art, it's hugely important, too. One wishes that you could go back 500 years to the origins of a particular engraving or woodcut. But thanks to collector stamps that sometimes exist on the back of these things, we can at least travel back to the 1700s or maybe even a little earlier, depending. We just got done with the Super Bowl. And I think there were six different automotive companies that were advertising their electric car. That's right. Well, that's the crystal ball we're all going to be looking into. You know, and it's do you funny. call those cars, or is that something else? Well, you know, I disparagingly call them toasters, but yes, in fact, they are cars. They're the kind of mode of transport we're all going to be enjoying, or at least subjected to in the future. Enjoying. Yeah, I think it's okay. Uh, certainly, Porsche, Ferrari, McLaren, any number of brands have proven that electric cars can perform. They're, they're certainly capable of achieving supercar status and performance. Tesla, for all the hate and people are doing on them, by and large, have proven that they've got a good business model and they make a remarkable vehicle. And you have to admit that what they've done by putting those recharge stations all over the planet that can recharge a car in, what is it, 90 minutes or something like that, or maybe even less, it's amazing. The time it takes to go use the men's room and buy a pack of corn nuts at some But you do take a long time in the men's room. Well, no, I just, uh, I have trouble with all the corn nuts. There are so many flavors, Bill, I can never (laughs) tell which one I want to get. And there is, let's just be honest, when it comes to a road trip, say you're driving from L.A. to San Francisco, what is the most essential component part of that road trip? big old bag of corn nuts. By the time you get there, I am so sick. I'm ready. (laughs) I have to almost pull over. I'm so sick from what I've eaten. But it's a part of the road trip experience. Well, let's talk about roads for just a minute. What's the best road you've ever driven on? Oh, now that's interesting. Certainly in Southern California, we're spoiled. Angeles Crest is remarkable. Ortega Highway is hard to beat. Even our little canyons around here in Malibu, fantastic. Some secret roads that are just pure torture on wheels. I love them. So there's a road, Robert, when you're leaving London and you want to go and check out Stonehenge, there's a very long, very narrow road that has these things that are called hedgerows. You have these massive hedges on either side of the road, and it's incredibly narrow. Now, in the UK, you're driving something that can only sort of be called a car. It's and you're very, driving very on the small. wrong side of the road because they still haven't come around. You're our driving way of on the wrong side of the road, and you're driving fast. And there is all of two inches, maybe three, between your mirror and the mirror that's coming the other way, and you are zipping as fast as you can. And at some point or another, when you get proficient at it. You feel so powerful. (laughs) I think that was my favorite road. 
Oh, that's great. That's great. Well, certainly European roads are narrow, and that's part of the challenge. I remember my first Lamborghini Murcielago excursion in Italy was fraught with quite a bit of terror, just trying to navigate some of those small streets in the old sections of town. My God, those cars aren't designed for that. They're designed for Fiat 500s. Apropos of which, I just have to give a shout out. You talk about discoveries, and there's still an opportunity to make discoveries as you get older. I recently got a Fiat 500. Don't laugh. Not only is it one of the most remarkable and accomplished pieces of automotive design. It opens cans and jars. Frank Frank Stephenson gets an A-plus for designing one of the most perfect cars in the world. It's also a fantastic car to drive. Now, the old saying, you can have more fun driving a slow car fast than you can have driving a fast car slow pertains. But when it comes to handling dynamics and the ability to park in places that you could never park before, in an urban setting around town, that little Fiat is magic. Back to roads, I think one of the best roads I ever drove was probably in Morocco. I guess the king at the time had ordered that it be paved, or whatever you can do in a totalitarian regime. It was a smooth as glass road and some of the most incredible landscape in the world, and I had just wished that I'd had a better car to drive there. Some time ago, I believe you may have orchestrated this, we had the folks from McLaren set up a Rob Report trip. We, I think we called it the New England Fall Colors Drive. And I would have to say that that's my best driving experience. Just absolutely stunning roads through mountains and a kind of a fireworks display of changing colors in the fall where the leaves are such a bright red and orange and yellow. And the roads look absolutely like they've been paved in the last 15 minutes. Well, you know, the seasons are something that drivers get to enjoy in the East Coast. And certainly from the seat of a McLaren, it's hard to beat that experience. One more road that you and I took together. Which one was that? And between us, we had four wheels. And we left the Maui Four Seasons, ah, right, went over to the Lahaina Airport. We hung a right, hung another right, and suddenly we were going up a mountain road to a volcano. Do you remember that fantastic, I, windy I, road to the I top do. of that volcano? I do. That, that's a magical place. And again, a place that you wish you could transport some of your favorite cars because put a car you love on a road like that, it's hard to forget. One thing I've got to say is that In my last 30 years, one of the absolute highlights of my life has been knowing and playing with you. This has been spectacular. I love you to death. Well, Bill, I feel the same way, and I think it's amazing that cars can bring people together to have those kind of experiences. But guess what? If all we had was sandbox and a bunch of wooden blocks, I think we would have had just as much fun. (laughs) Have a good day, Robert. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for joining us today on Cars That Matter. Come back next time as we continue to talk about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. This episode of Cars That Matter was hosted by Robert Ross, produced by Chris Porter, sound engineering by Michael Kennedy, Theme song by Celeste and Eric Dick. Edited by A.J. Mosley. Recorded at Kirkco's Malibu Podcast Studios. Additional music and sound by Chris Porter. Tune in to Cars That Matter wherever you rev up your podcasts. I'm Robert Ross. Thanks for listening. Kirkco Media. Media for your mind.